Hello, welcome back to another episode of the Code 321 Podcast. Today's episode is going to be on crew resource management. For those of you that are researching this year or next year, just remember that this is a CE topic and you can use this podcast as for that exact half an hour that you need. So feel free to use that um, on your NREMT. So welcome, gentlemen. Hello, Matt. Hello, Nate. Hi, Nick. Hey. So, Matt, let's start with you. So uh, welcome to the show, first of all. Nice to have you on. Thank you. Um, so I just want to hear a little bit about how did you get involved with helicopters? It's a pretty cool backstory. Okay. Yeah, no, thank you. First off, I appreciate you inviting me on the show. Uh, I've been in the Army for 12 years. I've been flying for about 10. Uh, I went to flight school in 2011, graduated October 2013. I flew Blackhawks for a little while in the medevac unit, and then I transitioned over to the uh, LUH-72 Lakota, and I've been flying that for about eight years, and I've been mostly on the scout recon platform. That's pretty cool. What are some differences that you found between the Blackhawk and the Lakota? What are some like key differences for those uh, helicopter junkies out there? Power. Yeah, oh, yeah. Which Power. one's more powerful? The Blackhawk. Oh, nice. By a yeah. lot. Yeah. 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 The Lakota, it's a, it's better to think of it as a, as a small like Bell 206 than a small Blackhawk. Yeah. The, uh, the power differences are huge. Like a, like a Blackhawk, Max Gross, I think is something like 23, 24,000 pounds. The Max Gross weight on the Lakota is like, 7,900 pounds. Yeah. It's like you, a third you, of the, like the third of the weight. Yeah. That's crazy. You ever been to the the batting cage, you know, the, when you put the balls come at you. I remember when I was working at Colchester Rescue, the Blackhawks came over and landed in the soccer field and it felt like I was standing in front of that. Every time the rotor hit, it was like, Oh, the rotor wash. Yeah. Oh, whoa. Crazy. Man. I thought I was going to blow away. I was about to tether myself to the car or something. They did. Uh, so we do stack displays over at uh, Essex cinema every year. So I, I did one, I think it was two years ago. We, I landed in the parking lot right in front of Essex cinema, not a bad big deal. You know, it's kind of a non-emotional event. The Blackhawk did it. I mean, <laughs> They did it like several years ago and they come over and like, this is back when they like had like uh, the movie schedule on like the old boards with like the letters and the black hat comes in and it's like peeling off all the letters. Like <laughs> it's going all over the place. Like tents are like flipping all over. They had like the bouncy castle for yeah. like the recruiters and it was like folding on itself going down the parking lot. Yeah. The little kids are like, best time of life. Yeah. Yeah. That's, awesome. the army. That's great. Nate, welcome to the show. Hi, Nick. You want to just tell the folks a little bit about how did you get involved in the fire service and what are you doing now? Ooh. Uh, I got involved in the fire service too many years ago yeah. as a, uh, as a high schooler, my dad was a volunteer firefighter and I progressed along to where now I'm work with Nick in the Burlington fire department as a Lieutenant at a ladder four and an AEMT. Um, I've been there for 13 years. That I think, sounds I, right, I, think yeah. I finally made 13 years. Yep, lucky 13. Yeah. Well, lucky 13. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, I don't know what else you want to know about yeah. that. <laughs> you do, and you do some work with USAR too. Is that right? Yeah, I uh, I do work with state USAR. Um, so I've seen some of the helicopters. I live right in kind of the flight path from the uh, airport to seats, which is awesome to see those guys fly over in the medevacs. I can't say I've seen the Lakotas, but I probably have. Yeah, I they're, run outside they're like smaller. A, little, a lot of people don't see us. Yeah, I run outside like a little kid every time. Looks like a giant up. jelly bean flying by. Yeah. <laughs> they're, sne- they're the sneaky helicopters. Sneaky see. ones. I'll get yeah. up on you. So today we're going to talk about crew resource management. Uh, Matt, we brought you in just because you have such a strong aviation background. Um, Nate, you've done a lot of leadership across a bunch of different um, 
different jobs he's had. And the crew, re- crew resource management came from the aviation industry, and it was specifically designed to address some leadership failures that were happening, specifically from like air disasters and other issues that the fire service realized were similar in their uh, shortcomings as what was happening in the aircraft industry. So, uh, Matt, can you talk just a little bit about what are some leadership failures and communication that maybe had led to this change of crew resource management? Uh, yeah, yeah. So we were, we were talking a little bit, uh, before the show and I, I think it was, uh, the South Korean airliners. They, uh, they had a, a long rash of accidents, um, in their aviation community. And basically it came down to in their culture, um, their pilot in command, their captain, they, their authority is paramount. You can't challenge it. You can't provide recommendations. If you did, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's dishonor to them. Um, so the co-pilots, what they would do is they wouldn't offer assistance. So if they were off altitude, off airspeed, they weren't on the right heading, their autopilots weren't engaged on, on an approach, the the crew would not work together to solve problems. So what would happen is that pilot in command, that captain, would end up essentially being single pilot. So if any emergencies came up, if bad weather came up, turbulence that would need a whole crew to deal with it, he was doing it on his own. And what happened is I think was they were shooting an approach i think they were shooting a precision approach into an airport and he didn't have his uh, his autopilots engaged and he was actually below the correct altitude so his his glide slope he was before below the glide slope into the airport and the co-pilot didn't say anything didn't say anything they had the alt uh the altitude uh warning came on and he still didn't say anything and they literally flew right into the ground yeah oh and all they would have had to do is a go around so just pull power and fly back up. Yeah. But because of the the culture and that happened, I think it was like two or three times, a very similar incidents that happened um, right next to each other. And because of the culture, they, they identified the culture was an issue. So if you go to more Western aviation crew, crew mix, what happens is like you're, you're non like in the military, you're non-rated uh, NCOs or crew chiefs in the back, your co-pilots and your pilot command, all their voices are heard. Everyone can offer assistance. Everyone can provide recommendations and it's called the most conservative option. So if someone doesn't feel comfortable, you can kind of terminate what you're doing, kind of come up to altitude, wings level, talk about it as a crew. Um, so I think aviation, especially Army aviation, relies heavily on crew mix and risk mitigation for like CRM in order to mitigate the potential of incidents. And then recently, um, I'm sure everyone's heard with uh, the two the two accidents have happened for the H-60s, one in New York, and I think the other one's in Idaho. The Army is transitioning heavily to reinforcing its CRM model, and they are they just came out with a new standard in our air, air crew training manual. It's called FEDIC-F, which we can get into a little bit more down the road. Yeah, absolutely. And so if, if that makes a little bit of sense, they're basically trying to address a need where you have these solvable small problems, and if they go unnoticed by one individual, theoretically that safety net of the crew will catch it before it becomes a catastrophic problem. Yeah, there's there's another additive to it. They call it the Swiss cheese model. So it's like, you know, the cheese with all like the holes in it. So they say like, you know, when, once all the slices of cheese with all the holes, they kind of align perfectly, that's when you have an accident. And it only takes one person to stop that alignment. It takes one person offering assistance. It takes one person saying like, hey, time out. I think you're doing the wrong thing. Or I think we're flying too close to that mountain. You know, maybe we should turn the other way. Um, that's where CRM is vital to prevent, you know, that alignment. And that, that 
Swiss cheese model. You don't want the Swiss cheese. You don't want it. Unless you have ham and cheese, then you want Swiss cheese. Yeah, mm-hmm. give it to me. Yeah. Um, Nate, so when you when you started in the fire service, obviously this wasn't really something that people talked about. So can you talk a little bit about how you've seen this communication style change a little bit as you've kind of gone up through the ranks and been promoted? Yeah, it's kind of interesting since you asked me to be on this podcast. I've been really kind of applying it a lot more mentally. Um, previously, I've taken a, a course on it in a college course. I didn't get anything out of it. I'm not going to be lie to you. And, and I remember the Swiss cheese model actually in that book where they had yeah. them slowly turning. And as they line up, there's a hole. There's like and, a laser shooting yep, through. Yep. You don't want to fall through that hole. If yeah. you have enough slices in between, then you'll never hit a hole. Right. Uh, so that makes, that makes complete sense to me. But when I started, it, that was not a philosophy we would ever consider. It was simple. Whoever's in charge is in charge. They make the decisions. You act upon those decisions and those orders you were given, and that's it. You took a hose line, you took a blood pressure, whatever needed to be done, you drove the truck. You didn't, you didn't say yes or no, or what about this? Is this another option to performing this? You just did the task you were given. And I believe nowadays that's changed quite a bit. Um, and it's, I think it's a change in leadership and it may have been resulting from seeing uh, changes in, it may very well have came from aviation, but leadership styles, more modern leadership styles are realizing that everybody has something between their ears that they can use. Now, the downside is I remember 15 years ago in the firefighter one classes, they'd say, anybody can be a safety officer until somebody is stopped for a safe reason. Now it's a great idea. That's a great, and that's, I believe that's part of crew resource management if yeah. you're all brought up to the same level. Is that correct? Yep. Yeah. But the downside of what we were talking about earlier in the fire service is you may have somebody who's brand new in a firefighter one class who's being told this. Excuse me. <clears throat> they may not know what a safety issue is. That's great. If you see something unsafe, you can stop it. Well, I think standing on a roof is unsafe. So I'm going to tell Nick to get off the roof. Well, that doesn't apply to the situation. You have to have a little more in-depth knowledge and understanding of what is a safe versus an unsafe condition, what is expected. What it, There's a lot more to it. And I think we're slowly, slowly refining that to try to get towards some of that in, in fire and EMS. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think what we talked about a little bit in the pre-show is having that mutual base of training so we have those conversations before we get to that moment you know you don't want to be having the conversation about the roof as you're climbing up the ladder to go vent it at a fire you want to have those conversations in a training environment and be like listen you know i understand that that's a steep roof here's what we're going to do to mitigate that risk and this is what we're going to train on until you're proficient so you're comfortable with what is and isn't okay because just because we're trained on something doesn't mean things can't go wrong so we've got to be we got to know what the right exactly. thing feels like so that when it's wrong we can say something absolutely yeah. So let's go through just the basic steps of crew resource management and just know, uh, Matt knows this, but I did not go to flight school. So I kind of just uh, know what I know from EMS and, you know, I have my flight uh, certificate, which I got and it has a crew resource management in there. But um, so the first steps would be seeking input from your crew members. Uh, second step would be providing input. You have make sure everyone shares the same mental model. So everyone's on the same page. 
you want to confirm any orders that you got from to, to make sure you understand what you're getting. And then any sort of conflict that occurs, you want to provide resolution and you're typically going to go with the most conservative option. So let's start with just the first bullet point here. So Matt, what would seeking input and providing input look like, let's say on a helicopter? So anytime you're doing like a, like a, a difficult or a complex mission set, like just because I'm a pilot in command, that doesn't mean that I'm, I'm omnipresent. It doesn't mean like I'm a hundred percent. I need to rely on my crew in order to execute the mission. So I'm going to seek input. If there's a better or more efficient way to do it, a safer way to do it, I'm going to seek that input from my co-pilot, from my sensor operator, from my crew chief. I'm not a one man show. And if you, if you run your aircraft that way, you're, you're going to run into problems. Because you're only as smart as your brain. If you're only using your brain, you're only as smart as your brain. Right. And, and when you're dealing with like missions out in the field, like things are, they get dynamic fast. I'm sure you guys can, can agree with that in your field of work. You know, like things change quick. And like you said, just because you, you trained to do it a certain way, that, that doesn't mean some curveball is going to happen. Um, I know we've done sensor work to help with local law enforcement at some point. And like when you're doing that in a controlled airspace, you got aircraft on approach into an airport, you got clouds coming in because clouds don't stay in a single spot all the time. So then you're dealing with that. Plus you're trying to conduct your mission and help your, your LEAs. So it's a dynamic environment. You need to rely on your crew. Yeah. And Nate, we'll, we'll go to you. I think one of the things that I always, almost always see with probationary members is they spend the first six or seven months being told you ride the back step, you do what I tell you to do. You pick this up, you put it down, you walk around like, you know, one hand in one hand out Macarena style. And then you get to month seven, eight, nine, ten, And now they're operating these vehicles and they're being area operators and pump operators. And you start to see that same style of yes or no, sir, to the point where there's failures of the system because they don't advocate for what they need done. And that transition from being that backstep firefighter or, you know, the EMS provider or the EMT on the call or whatever it is, where they're kind of a tactical employee that's taking orders to now be that person that says, I can't give you a two and a half. I don't have water or I can't charge a monitor. The battery's dead. Like providing that input to a superior, especially an officer, can be really challenging transition for people that are conditioned to be a cog in the machine for the first few months. Yeah, exactly. You need, you need to understand. So just want to step back just one second on what you said earlier you lift up listed off the five kind of steps on the as for career source management as as you define them just be aware those are continuous right this is yes. a continuous loop yep. this isn't a single loop this isn't a all right start of the shift all right we're going to seek input what nick what do you got today yep. and he's going oh, well we're not in any incidents yep. you know and maybe for you matt it's it's more about what's the weather today well the like you said Weather right now is going to be different than weather in 20 minutes potentially. Yeah, it's constant and ongoing. Yeah, so this is this, this is a reminder. This has to be a this has to be on a loop. This isn't a loop in the background. This is you know situational awareness, same kind of thing, running uh, running concurrently. So the the seeking input isn't a what do you think? It's a constantly being open to input. And, uh, and if, is that a better way of describing it? No, that, that's perfect. Yeah, is that yeah. in that I'm not just gonna ask you what you tell them. You're going to say, Hey, I noticed this, you know, I noticed that we're running low on saline locks in the truck. Well, okay, let's do something about it. What, what do we need to do about that? All right. Well, I just went to the stock room downstairs. We're out downstairs. So we need to go to the other station, pick some up. Well, let's go. That's a problem. You know, we have two left. We have a busy shift. We go back to back to back. All of a sudden we're looking at each other without proper equipment. That's a problem. Yeah. And I think the nice thing about what you just said about kind of positioning that communication style as kind of 
the transfer of information as a as opposed to strict direction is you may say to me, Hey Nick, we're out of saline locks and be like, Hey, I threw another box up in the flip up. Like there's a solvable solution and maybe you don't see the answer because of your perspective. And I've already thought of that and I've mitigated that problem in some way. Mm -hmm. And I can share that mental model with you so that we're on the same page. Whereas if you come up and you say, you know, you need to restock the locks, there's no locks there. Like you're not seeking first to understand you're just reacting and you're directing without seeking that input to get the share model and understand that I already thought of that and already took care of it. And now we're both on the same page and the problems mitigated before we have any sort of interpersonal friction, which is helpful. Absolutely. Yeah. So the other one that I think is helpful is confirming orders. I try to do this on EMS calls, on fire calls, like even just in my personal life, I try to really make that really clear. And I know like your first day in firefighter one, like what do they teach you? They're like, if, if one officer tells you to do something and you already have an assignment, you're supposed to say, you know, my assignment is a stretch a hose line. I can abandon that task, but I ask that you check with my officer, you know, whatever, you know what mm -hmm. I mean? And those are, those are just confirming the order so that what you are doing is actually what the person asked you to do. And I think that's really important because there's nothing worse than, you know, me having a patient I think is having a stroke and I say like, hey, let's get him, let's get him loaded up and taken care of. And I get in the back of the truck and, you know, somebody's uh, hooking the defib pads on him because he thinks it's a cardiac call. And it's like, no, you know, that's not, that's not what I want. But we have to confirm these orders and that closed loop communication so people understand. I think that makes a lot of sense. So I feel like, Matt, what you were talking about before was in the pre-show where you said if you run into a safety issue, hey, there's your uh, crew chief in the back, correct? Yep. Goes, hey, you see that mountain on the left that we're flying towards? We probably need to go up in elevation to miss that. I don't, I don't know how that communication exactly happens. Yeah, but they, they any, any sort of risks, like I was just thinking about this well when Nick was talking, like confirm orders. So if I if I tell my PI, my co-pilot, I'm like, hey, descend to, you know, 1,500 feet, you know, and do a, a left turn. And the crew chief in the back's like, well, there's a tower at like 1,500 feet. Like we're going to we're going to hit that tower if we turn left. That's first first off, you know, he's he's providing input and then he's making sure everyone's on the same page. He's like, okay, do you definitely want me to turn towards that tower? And then the PI or the crew chief can confirm that order. So they're about, everyone's communicating, everyone's talking about the potential risks. And that maybe I didn't even know there was a tower. Maybe I didn't see it. Maybe my head's not in the game that day. Maybe I'm fixated on, on what happens after the left turn, maybe rolling out, getting the sensor equipment, like, like, uh, uh, up and running and then focusing on the mission. I'm not, I'm thinking three steps ahead. I'm not thinking one step ahead and the one step ahead is which what's going to get you. Yeah. You definitely need the three steps ahead. Yep. There was, I actually watched a video where I talked about, um, applying crew resource management to the medical field and they gave the example of a blood pressure. So we go to a sick patient seeking input would be me running the call saying like, you know, Hey, Lieutenant, what did you get for a blood pressure? So that I can place that into our shared mental model and adjust my care based on what you tell me for feedback on the information that I need. Verbalize it to everyone. Exactly. And you know, the other, the other piece of that though, is if I don't ask that, if you find something that changes the direction of the call or is important information for the success of the mission, you have to supply it even if I don't ask it. And that's at providing input. So if I go to somebody, I'm like, yeah, let's just throw them in the stair chair. And you say their blood pressure is 70 over 40. And I'd be like, not the stair chair. Like that's going to change the way I look at this mission, but you have to supply that input. And I think what we talked about a little bit before is just that process of getting people comfortable enough that they know when to supply the right input and when to, you know, let things kind of go because we don't need someone that's like, 
lieutenant, you know, you just walked through a snowbank. Would you like me to shovel it? Like every little thing, this can just go out of control. You want to make sure that it's it's going to be um, directed towards the success of the mission. That's and where, I think that's, I think that's where standardized training really comes in hand. Yeah, because, absolutely. Because, I mean, providing input's good, but when you're providing miscellaneous input that maybe isn't relevant to what you're doing, it's, you know, if you're in a leadership position, it's like you kind of kind of like tune out some of that fuzz. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, right. And Lieutenant, there's a blue jay sitting on the edge of the ladder truck. Be like, we're going to a fire. Pay yeah. attention. You know? Yeah, so. Well, thank the you. other option is I just call you when we get back to the station. Hey, Nick, by the way, we got a blood pressure like 70 over 40. Oh, terrible. Yeah. Nothing worse than that. <laughs> I just dropped yeah. off the hospital. What yeah. are you talking about? Like, oh, yeah, yeah. He, I don't know, some tearing sensation, his abdomen, I don't know, a little little bump when we fill the stomach. I don't know. Yep. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Just, just. Pulsating. Yeah. yeah. You got that, right? You wrote that down in a report afterwards. Yeah. So let's let's talk about conflict resolution. I know, uh, Matt, you probably deal with this in the helicopter when when a discrepancy comes up in the input of information. And I know, uh, Nate, you deal with this all the time, both interpersonally and just on calls. I mean, it, it's no secret that everyone that works for us is an aggressive capital type A personality. And uh, when you're trying to have, you know, seven to 25 type A personalities run a simple hands-on drill or a fire or anything, this can be challenging. So Matt, what's a strategy that you've kind of been taught or you rely on when it comes to discrepancies in either decision-making or information? So, so in aviation, it really, I think standardized training is where you kind of, you get saved on this one. And if you're a pilot on the controls, your whole job is to fly the aircraft, look outside, make sure you don't hit another aircraft, uh, a bird, terrain, wires, whatnot. The pilot not on the controls is the one managing navigation equipment. They're the ones managing radios. They're coming inside and double checking engine transmission indications, hydraulic pressures, DC voltage, all that stuff. Uh, and if there's an emergency procedure, you defer to your basic rules. So that's maintain aircraft control, analyze the situation, and take the appropriate action. And as you pop open the checklist for a real emergency procedure, there's procedural steps in chronological order that you're supposed to do. So again, the pilot on the controls during an emergency situation, their whole purpose in life is make sure we don't crash. Just keep, keep it straight and level. Keep the Seems altitude simple. up. Yeah, just just fly <laughs> it. I'll come inside and I will diagnose what's going on. The CAD indications, the warnings, the lights, the, the funny stuff happening with the engine. I'll do that. If you can come inside momentarily and offer assistance and provide input, that's fantastic. But you're the guy that's making sure the rotor's in the green and we keep flying. Division of labor in order to deal with emergencies and relying on your standardized training to, to focus that division of labor, that's what's important when you're in a dynamic environment. That makes that makes so much sense. And it's funny because even though you're talking about that as you know an airplane crash or an airplane emergency, I think Nate and I can relate to that on a call. You know, like we, we go to a fire or something and you, you know, your exit your exit is blocked or, you know, the hose line loses pressure. There's a systematic approach to how we start solving those problems. And if you just all start running around like chickens with your head cut off, it's very difficult to get anything done. And I, I'll say this too, before any time, like a training flight or an actual mission, we do a crew brief and we talk about um, CRM in the crew brief. So we'll say like, hey, if we, we go inadvertently into the clouds, you know, and we're not prepared to do that, what's the procedure for that? What's the first thing we're going to do? We're going to announce our seating position and then we're going to do the ATM steps. So, you know, which is basically wings level, start a climb. That's what we're going to do. And then if there's an emergency, what are we going to do? And this, we talk about this stuff before every mission. We talk about basic rules. We talk about the most conservative response. So if, if it's, you know, me, a pilot in command, a co-pilot and a guy in the back, 
guy or girl in the back, and they don't feel comfortable with what we're doing based on the mission complexity, based on the weather, based on what we're doing, whatever the variables are, anybody can say, hey, like, I don't feel comfortable with this. And that's kind of, that's my moment to, as a pilot in command, to key in on that and be like, maybe we are focusing on the mission too much. Maybe it's time to throttle back a little bit and assess the risk of what we're doing. Maybe we are kind of leaning a little bit more to, towards the right and we're being a little too aggressive. Maybe we got to bring it back to center and, and reassess. Right. Is, that a, is that a standardized um, system throughout the, yeah. throughout the Army or is that up to you as you being the lead of that flight to so we, it's, run that? In our air crew training manual, there's actually like a published crew briefing checklist and it has all the same stuff. Now, as a pilot in command, you know, with experience, I can add stuff to that, but I can never take away. And I, it's required that I hit every single bullet on that checklist before every single flight. Wow. And, it, you know, if, if there is a, like a crash incident, that stuff is, is investigated by the army. They're like, did you talk about intervert IMC? Did you talk about the basic rules? Did you talk about most conservative options? Did you talk about transfer the flight controls? Um, you know, when you transfer the flight controls to the other pilot, you know, you do a visual confirmation, you know, shakers or takers. Basically, you shake the, the controls a little bit to make sure that, yep, the mm -hmm. guy or girl next to me definitely has them. If you have an upper mode, like autopilots engage, you say what it is and what it's at. So if you that autopilot's armed at, you know, 3,000 feet, you're saying, okay, I've got you, I've got you armed at 3,000 feet for altitude acquired. You have flight controls. And I'm physically looking at the other person take the flight controls. So there's no mistake because if there is an emergency during that transition, again, flying pilot flies the aircraft, non-flying pilot deals with diagnosing the emergency. I feel like that's a great um, confirming orders. Right. That's, that's great to repeat what you just heard. Um, armed to 3,000 feet, yada, yada, yada. I've just, I repeated what you said, uh, although I just didn't. Um, I would have repeated exactly what you said, but that doesn't mean I'm doing any of it. Right. So reading it off, seeing those, having that tactile feedback, uh, feedback is a great way of making sure that's truly confirmed as an order and understanding that that's going to happen. And when we, we have like an upper mode engaged, the, the, the new flying pilot is like, Roger, I've got us at 3,000 feet. So yeah, they, they confirm the order. So there's kind of that splashback between the two aviators acknowledging what's going on with the flight controls and who has them at that time. Yeah, and this is, this is great stuff. And it comes from where we did it wrong in the past, which is a lot of what we've done in the fire service is a lot of our rules we have now is from stuff that went bad in the past. I, I remember one of my instructors one time told me the, you know, the NFPA manual is a book of death. It's, you know, the reason that that exists is because people were killed doing something bad. You know, the triangle shirt, shirtwaist fire, you know, stuff went wrong. You know, you had pyrotechnics exploding in nightclubs, whatever. And those are the reason that we have these fire codes. So whenever we have the, the young bucks, including myself, we were like, oh, this sucks. NFPA, what? Like, doesn't matter. Like, it does matter, though, because people died not paying attention to the rules, just like in uh, aviation, there are, I'm sure there are specific aircraft incidents that you reference throughout school that you look at. One of the ones I always think about that I learned in crew resource management previously is that flight that flew into the Everglades from the landing gear light. They thought mm -hmm. that they were going, being out. <laughs> yeah, they were going around and around and around and they were very confident that the landing gear was not engaged because the light was not engaged and they didn't have a checklist. They didn't have a system for that. They didn't, you can listen to the black box recording. They weren't able to troubleshoot down and actually decide if the front landing gear was down. 
And it, it, from what I understand, I'm not a pilot, but basically, even if your front landing gear is not down, if you're back to our, which they knew they were, you could still come in and kind of touch your rear wheels down and just kind of set your nose down at the end. So it's not a catastrophic failure. Right. It's something that could be mitigated. But they were so focused on this light that they circled and circled and circled until they went out of fuel and they went right into the Everglades. And they did this huge assessment and they realized the landing gear was down. The light was out on the dash because they didn't have that system of you know, check this, check that, or that procedure of, okay, even if that landing gear is not down, what are our options to land this aircraft? Most, uh, most emergency procedure checklists they'll and there's different variations of like how expeditious you should get in the ground, something like that. It's like a, land as soon as possible. Or like a land, like if you're on fire, it's land immediately. It's get in the ground. You should do that for sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't like being on fire. <laughs> uh, or like land as soon as practicable. Uh, yeah. you know, it's like a made up like army name, but practicable, pr- practicable, <laughs> get that um, aircraft on the ground. But like something like a landing gear, it's like, okay, you have a perfectly flyable aircraft. Just go find an airport and troubleshoot it there. Yep. Start talking mm-hmm. to your controller, get, you know, emergency services on the ground to receive you for when you do an emergency landing. That's it. I mean, yeah. it's easy. Let's slow it down. And yeah. that, honestly, that's the direction that the, the the army is leaning towards now with the new FADIC app, which is like fly, alert, diagnose, execute, communicate and fly, which is pretty much CRM like on steroids. Yeah. The, whole, the whole point of it, because uh, recent accidents, people, something like that happens in the cockpit and they react so quick. And they don't think about what's going on. They're not, their primary focus isn't just keep it level. Let's just fly. They just react to what they think an emergency is, kind of like what you're saying. And they end up, you know, going the other way and turns into a class A accident. So FADIC F now with the, the military, it's slow it down, really rely on that CRM and analyze your situation before you put an input in and really commit the aircraft to something. That's, it's interesting you say that because I remember specifically I had a really bad trauma a couple of years ago in a different service I was working on. A guy had gotten struck by a motor vehicle pretty hard and he was really, really sick. And uh, the crew I was with was a very junior crew. I didn't really have any senior people to rely on. And it was like, it, it literally was chickens with their head cut off. They're running around, focused on stuff. One lady was wrapping a bandage around this degloved arm and we had to slow down and had to refocus the crew and be like, do they have an airway? Yes. Are they breathing? No. Let's ventilate that and fix that emergency life threat right now. Do they have a pulse? Yes. Is it weak? Do we have a blood pressure? Like just start from the very, very basic, just kind of like what you said, like fly the plane, Mm -hmm. like level. Okay. Now what's next? Do we have fuel? Yes, we have fuel. Like I'm sure there's a checklist for that. That's what the whole FADIC F. It's literally another checklist built into every emergency procedure checklist. And it really, it's just meant to ground you. It's like, let's take it slow. Like again, start with basics. What's the most important thing? Just keep it flying. Exactly. Mm-hmm. After that, we can talk about anything we want to talk about. Yeah, exactly. No, it makes sense. So if I can get it to work here, I, I would like to play this audio clip. Um, this is a incident that happened. Uh, Sully Sullenberger, I think his name was. Yep. So you all know him. Um, he, yeah. So he landed a full passenger jet in the Hudson River after having a bird strike, which took out both engines. And this is the actual black box recording of him communicating with the tower. And I was really impressed when I heard this because it seemed to me like everyone were remain pretty calm and I'm so impressed by the speed at which the information's conveyed. It's pretty much like this is what I need. Okay, you got it. That's not going to work. Let's do this. And I w- I really um like how efficient they are and you can tell that he's a senior pilot and that they've trained really hard on this stuff. And I think 
um, Nate, especially us, we can learn some things both on EMS calls and fire calls about transmit pertinent information clearly and concisely and give a affirmative negative answer based on the mission perspective efficiently so that the communication style can be direct. You know, it shouldn't be like, oh, yeah, this thing, you know, I was thinking about that thing. And then, you know, uh, before you play that, do you, do you guys have standard like radio terminology? Yeah, we actually do have a... You do? Depending on what it is, Like yes. brevity yeah. codes, that, that sort of thing? No. No, no codes, plain language. Yeah. So, so aviation, like everything we everything you say on the radio to like tower, departure, ground, another aircraft, it's all standardized. Now, with that said, you know, sometimes it's not enforced when you're like a, a non-terrored airport, but like talking to Burlington, every single radio call you say is there's like a template for what you're saying and you're just plug and playing. Mm-hmm. So if I'm flying, I'm guard copter, whatever you know, inbound to the army guard ramp, full stop. They're like everything. I, it's not made up stuff. It's not made up terminology. It's all standard. It's the same thing over and over and over again. So when the, when you play this, that's all standard, like radio and aviation talk and the interaction between the controller. I think it's like Tito Burrell that he's talking to yeah. and like the flight crew and the flight crew talking to each other. That's all standard, like terminology that they're, they're using. So do they have Matt, do you know is in the tower, are they going to operate off a checklist similar if you had an in-flight emergency? That's exactly the, yeah, they have a checklist. It's going to be the same checklist, thing, just checklist. in a different location, not moving as much. Yep. And, lo- and a little plug for the listeners out here. I'm a huge fan of checklists. I love checklists. I read the checklist manifesto. I have uh, secret checklists all over the ambulance and on my phone. I'll show you next time uh, by our narcotics vault. I have a, if you open up the narcotics thing, I got a whole innovation checklist. I love it. I'm um, only a junior paramedic. I can't fan. open up that one. You're, I can use all the other tools. You're honorary. We'll give you a little <laughs> sticker. All right, let's see if we can play this. Okay, uh, you need to return to LaGuardia. Turn left heading of uh, 220. 220. Sorry, stop your departure. He's got emergency returning. That's right. It's 1529. He, he uh, bird strike. He lost all engine. He lost the thrust in the engines. He's returning immediately. Cactus 1529. Which engines? He lost thrust in both engines, he said. Got it. Cactus 1529. We can get it for you. Do you want to try to land 1913? We're unable. We may end up in the Hudson. I can't get 1549. It's going to be left traffic to runway 31. Unable. Okay, what do you need to land? I can't get 1549. Runway 4 is available if you want to make left traffic to runway 4. Idiot. Okay, I'm not sure any runway. Uh, what's over to our right? Anything in New Jersey? Maybe Teterboro? Okay, yeah, off your right side is Teterboro Airport. Do you want to try to go to Teterboro? Yes. Teterboro, uh... Empire, actually, LaGuardia departure guy, emergency inbound. Hey, guys. Cactus 1529 over the George Washington Bridge wants to go to the airport right now. Wants to go to our airport. Check. Does he need assistance? Uh, yes. He, uh, it was a bird strike. Can I get him in for uh, runway one? Runway one. That's good. Cactus 1529, turn right 280. He can land runway right. one at Teterboro. We can't do it. Okay. Which runway would you like at Teterboro? We're going to be in the Hudson. I'm sorry. Say again, Cactus. Cactus 1549, radar contact is lost. You also got Newark Airport up at 2 o'clock in about 7 miles. Eagle 5, 4718, turn left thing 210. 210, uh, 4718. Uh, I think he said he was going to the Hudson. 
So it's good for those of you who are listening. Just remember, I believe uh, nobody died from this incident. Nope. Is that nope. right? Nope. Everyone was safe and sound. Nope. And Some mir- wet feet. That's about it, right? Mm-hmm. Miracle on the Hudson. Yeah, it was, it was pretty cool. Uh, if you, you know, if you do the, watch the NTSB report and the hearings that they always do after these big crashes, it's pretty interesting. Not very often do they have a big crash like that and have the pilot testify. So it's pretty exciting. Um, so what are your initial thoughts, Matt? Let's start with you about kind of how those communications went. I, no, I mean, like I like I said before, you uh, you played it. That's the the radio brevity communication. That's all standardized, and it's standardized to allow for situations like that. So if there is an emergency, it's not some guy just talking about everything that's going on. It's really short, concise communication. Towers tracking it. They're trying to give him different runways. The thing is, I think this happened at like three thousand feet. There's really no way that you you can recover a fixed wing at that altitude at 3,000 feet with all the airports around you. So he made, I mean, he made the right call. He went to the Hudson. And I think the first time he said, yep, I think we're going on the Hudson, he already made the decision. Yep. I mean, he was just trying to do the right thing and get it on, on a runway, but he already made that decision just by eyeballing it. Um, and I know I, I watched the movie that that's connected to this, and I really liked how they showed the crew coordination between the two guys. Because obviously, like Sully's like the pilot in command, and I remember in the movie he immediately turned on the uh, the emergency power because they had a dual engine failure. So most most turbine engines, when the the generators only turn on when both engines are working, other than that, you're working off a battery. And his he knew the checklist so well, he immediately turned on the battery so they wouldn't lose power in the aircraft. Skipping steps. Skipping steps because he knew his checklist so well. Yep. Because um, he trained that and. Like turning your flaps, you know, land, landing gear up, all that. Like the the dynamic between the pilot in command, Sully, and the co-pilot offering assistance. And I remember like they were getting closer to the ground. His co-pilot's like, what, like, what else do you need? What else can I do for you? You know, what else do you want? And then at the end, Sully is like, do you have any ideas? You know, seeking input from his crew. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm all out of tricks. Like, what, what else you got? Um, no, I think that's the perfect situation. That's crew mix done exactly the way it's supposed to be done. Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense. I think one of my favorite parts of that audio is when, you know, he says, do you want to go to Teterboro? He says, yes. They get him immediately over to the runway and that uh, air traffic control um, person at Teterboro says, he, you know, he says, we have a plane that wants to go right now. And he goes, check runway one, like immediately, like yep. he, you can tell he's prepared for that call to come in at any moment. And like, we got a, we got a plane coming in and he's like, I got you runway right now. And he can immediately start his checklist. And then as you know, the pilot is saying, you know, I can't do it. Then that the original air traffic controller says, okay, what do you need? Like, not like, well, can you try? Can you do this? Well, exactly. I think you should. It's just, okay, what do you need? And I really like that. Because that pilot in command, I mean, he's the one in the cockpit. He's the one feeling it. He's the one experiencing it. Like his, what he says goes in that moment. And these guys are just trying to help him out. I will say that when you have a, a true emergency in an aircraft, your, uh, your transponder code, you, you uh, squat 7700. And basically as a controller looking at your radar for, uh, you know, New York City or Boston or, or Burlington, um, it starts to ping. And what they do is they pretty much clear everyone around you so you can land. You become the most important person in their airspace when you start squawking the 7700. And I got to imagine that there's a, there's kind of a um, companionship between pilots that if a aircraft's at 7700, like I would imagine you guys would kind of like what we do in a mayday, you kind of back off, make sure they have plenty of room. You yep. do whatever you can do to make their life as easy as possible. Yeah, that's right. You know, so Nate, what are your thoughts on that? Oh man, it's so that's way more than we're going to deal with in 
and EMS and most fire situations of any stretch. That's a, that's a once in a, I don't know. I don't think it's a once in a lifetime. I think it's less than that, you know, for the vast majority of people. Um, it, it's amazing to listen to how they can go back and forth and take input and provide clear, concise answers. Like Matt was saying, it's, it's scripted. Yeah. It's scripted. I, I wish we could get to that level. Uh, that certainly takes some training. And I know, Nick, you can attest to this. If you work with the same crew over and over, you can get to that point with them. Um, we don't, I won't say we have that from the beginning in EMS and fire. That's, that's certainly not happening. Uh, even our discussion with the hospital, like if you don't know the nurse, they may ask you a million questions. You call up to, call up to ED and they're going to ask you, well, how's the patient's big toe? Did you assess that? Well, that has nothing to do with their chest pain. Yeah. Right. Like, well, I mean, mm. who cares? Who cares if they have eight fingers? Like that has nothing to do with their chest pain. They always have eight fingers. That's just the way it is. But they're asking these questions that are not necessary, are completely throwing you for a loop. But after a while, you start to learn those people. They start to learn you and understand what they need to ask you and understand you're going to tell them the pertinent information. If you didn't say something, then it doesn't apply in this situation. Do you think they, they ask those non-pertinent questions because maybe there isn't a checklist that they can default to? So it's like chest pain. If you have chest pain, I know I should probably ask these five questions. I shouldn't be asking about your fingers or toes. Yeah, I think what, I, that's a nice little extreme example, but I think what happens, and correct me if I'm wrong in this, Nick, is you get somebody that's newer to EMS. And when we call up the hospital, we, we speak to somebody that has, I believe, an EMT minimum. If I remember right. Yeah, they have to have their EMT. They're required yeah. to have their EMT minimum. Yeah. So you may get somebody that's a newer EMT. That's somebody who doesn't have any, I shouldn't say any, who doesn't necessarily have much field experience. They may have the classroom. They may have the book work down, but not a lot, not a significant number of clinical hours. Um, I'm not sure what the clinical hours are for District 3 currently. For, for EMT? Yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure. I, I know, at least with our program, we require five patient contacts. Yeah. So there's but no clinical requirement. But sitting in a room, listening to somebody else's report, when you're trying to then, you're the intermediary, right? So I call up to Nick at the hospital saying, hey, we're bringing in a chest pain, 9 on 10, rating down the left arm, you know, history of three strengths previously. We've got 12 weed. It's been sent, semi, MI. And that means all these things. And him being a new EMT is going to go, well, okay, did you, what do you have for breath sounds? What do you have for, is there any lymphedema? Is there, you know, all these other aspects that you could look for hmm. that I may be assessing, but he may not realize like, okay, now he needs to take that information and tell the charge nurse so they can appropriately place this patient inside the ED. So they can either go to a waiting room where they're not going to be observed or they're going to go to an acute room where they're going to immediately be met by a nurse, a doctor, maybe even assessed in the hallway to go to cath lab, something of that effect. And they're, they're trying to gather this information, but they don't have the background necessarily to do that. Gotcha. But after, after a length of time, you start to see them come around. That's always what's kind of fun yeah. being on the ambulance is you'd have those people that started when you'd already been there. And then after time, they realize, okay, I don't need to ask that anymore. He didn't give me that, you know, I can trust Matt. I can trust you to give me the appropriate information so that you give me the information every once in a while. You may forget something and I may remind you, Hey, this is an option. Have you done this? 
yeah, we checked that out. We found this. Perfect. Right. And I then I wonder, uh, I guess that, that just kind of reaffirms the importance of training and experience. Oh yeah. That sounds like it's paramount, you know, for us and for you guys as well. Yeah. Um, I wonder too, for what's, what's the ratio between like new, new people to like the EMP EMT field and like, you know, experience, like, is there, is it like a two to three? Is it a one to two? Is it, there's a lot of turnover right now. Yeah. Really? I mean, I'm, I'm at five years right now and I have, uh, over 40 people below me Wow, out of a department of 85. Yeah. Just in our department members, you know, so it's, it's tough. I think uh, what Nate was alluding to is let's take uh, the trauma criteria, right? So if you have a patient that let's say is involved in a nasty car accident, technically the hospital has a list of things that determines whether they're a red trauma or a green trauma or not a trauma. Different alerts get different resources. So a newer member up there and a newer ambulance member will say, this is the blood pressure. This is the mechanism. This is the mental status. This is the heart rate. This is the breathing rate. They'll say all of those criteria. And then the hospital staff will look at that sheet and they'll match it up and determine which level it is. But for somebody, you know, like me, who's a little more comfortable. And especially if I have a, you know, a comm center or a radio or a nurse who knows me really well, if I show up to a car accident, I say, you know, hey, I'm coming in hot. I got a male patient, uh, car accident, 50 miles per hour, unresponsive. That is a red trauma. That's easy. Because I know that if they're unresponsive from trauma, it's a red, no matter I, what the other things are. I like the clear and concise communication, too. Yep. You're, you're probably calling that over the radio, right? So, yep. they, so they're prepping to receive. Yep. Yeah, I, I like but that. But that's a, that's a learned communication. That's, that's definitely learned and tailored over time. So the initial training that these guys get, they don't get that radio training? It's not just them. It's on our side as well. Really? Okay. Because my first time, I, I was talking about this the other night. I still remember uh, one of my early calls where I didn't know how far, how fast the car was going. Yep. I didn't. We didn't have. Um, Air, airbag deployment. Yeah. Restrained. Yeah, head exactly. Injuries, none of that, I had none of that information that yep. people I was working with didn't push me towards that information. So yep. I'm. I showed up and I, I gave a report to the hospital. I'm sure they were confused over the yeah. radio. And then I, I walk in and talk to the nurse. I'm like, so we've got a, a patient hit by a car. Here he is. Yeah. yeah. And the nurse looks at me and goes, okay, how fast is the car going? Yeah. It, it was, it's snowing out. Yeah. It's six inches of snow on the road. I like, I, fast. I just, <laughs> no idea. And I, I still remember that to this day. That was at least, that was 13 years ago. I still remember that of like, wow, this was not prepared at all. You know, and that, and that to me, that's not just a reflection of the people I was working with. That's also to my detriment as well. But there was no working together as a crew, I felt, on that call to accomplish that. So the, uh, the EMT certification process, does it go over like radio calls or is that just something you get with time? We do. I think part of it, though, is the nuances of knowing what type of uh, stimulus offers what type of resource response. So I've talked about this in the airway lecture. Like for me, I know as a paramedic with my experience that if I place an oral airway adjunct in a patient and they don't respond, it means they have no airway reflexes, which means that they're going to get an initial heavy response from the hospital because it's a critical patient. Gotcha. So I could say you know, the patient has this blood pressure, the patient has this SpO2, the patient is breathing at this rate. I could give all of these little bullet points that add up to this big picture, or I could say the patient's unresponsive with no airway reflexes. But that's on you to correlate all that information and then yep. relay that concise communication to the hospital so they can 
properly prep. Yeah. Right. Correct. And that takes time to help people kind of build that model. It'd yes. be like with you, if you, if you had an in-flight emergency, you know, let's say the checklist was built poorly. You could be like, my aircraft is green. Like I am level. If you don't start with, I have no fuel. Like right. I have no fuel. I need somewhere to land. Then they're like, okay. And they start working on the solution and you can add in the other details. But mm-hmm. what we find with new providers and new firefighters and all that stuff is they'll start with the things that they know, even if they're minute details that are not pertinent to the current situation right. instead it, of the most important first. You go to primacy. Yep. The, the most basic, simple thing, you know, you start there and you, you go up. Yeah. When I went to flight school, they call it you know, like rote memorization. They're like, like flashcards. And then like the, the final, like, you know, level of learning is like uh, correlation. So you're taking, you know, a bunch of different pieces of information and bringing it together and then you can create thoughts and like think dynamically. Yeah. Um, we, I, we see that a lot with like, uh, like fresh flight school students, like just coming out. Uh, like you ever heard the, like the hundred percent theory? No. So you can only use like a hundred percent of your, of your concentration ever. So mm-hmm. if like 20% you're applying of your concentration to like family, and 20% you're applying it, you know, for that bill that you didn't pay or something. So that means you're only applying 60% at best to your job. And if your job is, is extremely complex, you're only 60% of what you can be. So, you know, aviators, so guys that, that come fresh out of flight school, they're using like 80% of their concentration just to fly. They're not thinking about other aircraft in the airspace. They're not thinking about fuel, power. They're not thinking about their air sense. They're just thinking, I got to keep this thing like 90 knots and a thousand feet. The more experience you get, it's like, it only takes me 20% to fly the aircraft. So now I have 80% thinking about the mission, crew mix. That's exactly what happens. Mitigation. So yeah. So it's like, they they talked about it a while ago. We had like a guest speaker and he brought up. So it's like, I I guess maybe you can Google it, but it's like the hundred percent theory. So it's like, you know, very rarely people are at a hundred percent concentrated on their given complex task. And again, it goes back to risk mitigation and crew mix. It's like, okay, so I know that you had a rough night of sleep and maybe you got some stuff going on in your personal life. And, you know, maybe you you miss that mortgage payment. So I know at best you're probably 70%. So then you can, you can, I mean, we try to do it is we adjust crew mix to take on more complex missions. And that, that we fill out an RCOP. So an RCOP is like our risk mitigation sheet. And it's like, you can balance risk by switching crews around. Mm-hmm. But you, cool. also have, you also have people that they were the 30% um, concentration is better, is more valuable than somebody with 60% concentration. Yep. Because like I said, you have that new yep. guy. Yep. Again, me being that new EMT showing up in the ambulance, not knowing what to say, not knowing what to, I mean, Exactly. Should I have known? I'm not going to lie. Yes, I should have known. Absolutely. That, that comes down to me. I should have known to ask and see and, and have all that information. But I didn't. And I can tell you what, I learned a lot on that, that one incident of making sure I have that. Now you take Nick, who, whatever, he slipped on the incident, rolled his ankle because it's snowy out. The cot then rolled over his other foot. So he's hobbling along. Right. Mad about that. You, you want, I'd be willing to bet he's going to have way more information than how far, they, how fast the car was going and whether it was damaged to the windshield or not. Exactly. I, I can guarantee he's going to have more information than that. Exactly. Yeah. Because he's up and he's able to operate at that higher level. Right. So yeah, even if he's with a rolled ankle, he's like, yep, I'm still, that takes 10%. I can still throw 90% at, be, at doing my job. Yep. And what I really like about that concise prioritizing the key information first is if you remember in the audio clip we played, 
like, I think one of the first transmissions he said, and you mentioned it is, I think we're going to end up in the Hudson. And then he starts troubleshooting right. that way that aircraft traffic controller can start spreading resources. They kind of have this worst case scenario of let's get some boats deployed. Let's get FDNY rolling. Let's get EMS. Like we know that. So you saw in the movie, uh, you can't hear it obviously over the, the recording, but in the movie, it actually shows the co-pilot squawking 7,700. And that pretty much that just parts the seas, hmm. like all the aircraft and everybody clear out away from that aircraft and they become the most important person in the airspace. And again, clear, concise communication. And I'm pretty sure he never even told the co-pilot to do that. The Squawk yeah, 77. He's like, training. Yep. yeah, again, you go back to standardized training. You go back to preparations for emergencies. I don't need my, my captain or my lieutenant to tell me to Squawk 77. I'm just going to do it so he can focus on trying to manage this cockpit. Yep. Well, it's, I, I've run the same thing on the ambulance. We had the Sunday morning trauma alert test. Yeah, <laughs> That's what I call it anyway. Yeah. Uh, just based on dispatch. A juvenile who fell off, it was a bike or a skateboard, unconscious. There's no traffic on the road, middle of a Sunday. We're going to be in the hospital in about three minutes, right? It's going to be, it's going to be put him in the ambulance and we're going real, short real fast, right? There was no, there was, if that's what we arrived when we found, uh, found when we arrived on scene, we're going to be at the hospital before they're ready. They have a 15 minute time frame to be prepared in the ED. Does that sound right for a trauma alert? Yeah, I think we usually catch them pretty off guard because yeah. we're, we're so close. It's so hard for them. Yep. But. And they have a time frame. They have a maximum amount of time frame before they're ready. And the person mm-hmm. in the comm center who we call, the, the person we make initial contact with, who said, hey, we're going out to this. And he knew time of day. He knew what we we're going to throw at it. He knew how quickly we'd be there. Before we even got on scene, just based on the update, he called a trauma alert. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Canceled it because it wasn't at all what was described, but that's, yeah. that's beside the point. But he was ready. I mean, he had the experience. He had the know-how to know, I'd rather get people coming because this is going to be bad rather than waiting to find out if it's bad. He's trying to lead the ball a little bit to help the system work. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's where you're talking about where he turned on the, the emergency APU. Yeah. That's exactly order, right? right. He went, he knew that was going to need, be needed early on. Right. Well, I'm not going to go through steps one through 10. Like we need power now. Yeah. I'm just going to turn it on. Exactly. And that's, and this applies to EMS in rural areas. I know there are services that I've worked with up in the Northeast kingdom. And if they get like a, you know, male patient with a tractor rolled over pinned, they'll, they'll pull out of the bay and call dart and say, dart, if you can fly, get up in the air because they know that, Dart will come up and they can just they can just circle the site. And by the time that they get there and do that initial assessment, they can determine whether it's a, a helicopter transfer or if it's BS and it's not. And worst case scenario, they just turn around and head back. It's just a helicopter. It's not that long of a flight. But what you don't want to do is get there and be like, oh, yeah, he's super sick. Hey, can we get a helicopter? And then you're sitting there twiddling your thumbs when you could have used that, you know, that uh, initial response time to move another higher resource to be ready for the worst case. I know uh, I know military medevac. I don't know if civilian that goes by the same rule, but the golden rule, the, the one hour rule from like, you know, point of like yeah. injury to like bring it to your upper echelon yep. of medical care. Yep. Yeah. So for that, sure. it yep. feeds into that. Yeah. So, 
Well, gentlemen, thank you for uh, joining us today. Hopefully you had a good time. Um, thank you so much for being here. Hopefully the folks uh, listening learned a little bit about crew resource management. I know that this isn't always the most glamorous topic, but I hope you can see if you bring the right people in, it actually can be pretty interesting and entertaining. If you have any questions on this, we can get you in touch with people that can help you more. As always, you can find information on our website, netsvt.com. You can get a hold of me as well at Nick at NetsVT. Check out our Contact Us page. You can see all the staff that work for us. So, thank you, Matt. Thank you, Nate. Thanks, Thanks, appreciate it.